This episode is dedicated to Azicionus, Miles Gevremont, Dan Solce, and Shingala Shota, for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters, and helping to make this project possible. The Southpaw podcast and project is supported entirely by listeners like you. If you want to support the work that we do, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. Share these episodes, follow us on social media. If you're a new listener, make sure to click subscribe. And if you really want to support this project, then become a paid monthly subscriber on patreon.com slash southpawpod. If you head over to Patreon and subscribe for just $4 a month, you will get immediate access to our complete catalog of bonus episodes, videos, and articles. The more supporters we have, the more time we can dedicate to the show, which means more bonuses, such as classic fight commentary, transcripts of interviews, building a liberation martial arts online curriculum, and most important of all, hire and pay for staff. If you can't support us monthly, you can also do one-time donations at co-fi.com slash southpawpod. We also have t-shirts and sweatshirts to not only flex the show, but your own moral compass. By supporting us, you're not only helping us grow, you're also helping us stay and keep this project running. We can't exist without your support. Thank you. This is Sam. This is Nadia. And this is Southpaw. Today on Southpaw, we have a returning guest, sociologist and activist scholar, Professor Nadia Kim. Welcome back, Nadia. Thanks so much for having me again. Happy to be here. So you were on episode 31 back in 2019 when the world was very different. (laughs) (laughs) The topic back then was also neoliberalism as it relates to racism. At the time, we talked more about how that reflected itself in movies and uprisings. Now you've written a new book called Refusing Death, Immigrant Women and the Fight for Environmental Justice in L.A. Having read the book, I know this was a massive undertaking that must have started well before our first chat up until very recently. So now I can see how working on this project might have informed our conversation even back then as neoliberalism and race are once again at the forefront of refusing death. So as is our style, we'd like to jump right into it. Tell us about Refusing Death and what it's about. Yeah, so definitely when we talked last time about Always Be My Maybe and Crazy Rich Asians, I was about a year into the fieldwork. And one of the things we talked about in that last episode was the importance of the politics of the body and emotions when we think about racism, classism, capitalism, right? Um, Imperialism and globalization. And that was one of the main findings of my research, which I didn't necessarily expect, but made perfect sense when you're dealing with immigrants of color 
uh, people of color who not only face physical problems because of environmental contamination um, that's unequally um, unleashed against them, but they told me a lot about the emotional stressors, not just of worrying about their asthmatic children or the bronchitis and cancer uh, that was in their families or in their communities, but also because these are immigrants of color who, for example, on the mostly Mexican Latinx side, because that's one of the major ethnic, ethno-racial groups I worked with, they have to worry about deportation and surveillance, and they have to worry about being low income. Uh, and uh, how are they going to pay the bills? And they don't have transportation, which in Los Angeles, as you well know, makes it incredibly hard to be mobile. Our public transportation system is not expansive or strong, though it's gotten a little better, uh, but definitely not where it should be in 2021. So they're dealing with nativist racism. Of course, we now call it white nationalism, but I prefer the term nativist racism because the research I did was before the rise of Trumpian neo-fascist racist demagoguery, right? Um, and so uh, all of these things, and they're also dealing with intersectional stereotypes as uh, women of color. So uh, on the Filipina, Filipino side, they're dealing with being seen as forever foreign Asians slash Latinos, right? Filipinos occupy a unique position. Um, you know, the women are seen as either being passive or fiery. You see that also on the Latinx side, but also on the Latina side, you have stereotypes of them being these uh, hyper fessened mothers who are birthing too many babies and bringing down the culture of California and the United States. So it, you can understand how this is an emotional assault on them and their communities, but it's also important to remember because what I found was, and I won't go in depth on this right now, but they were very attuned to the ways in which regulatory agencies in the government, as well as corporate America, also used emotional power as a way to control the situation. So that was also very important. So just to clarify, sounds like then, because your research started before Trump, nativist racism existed prior to Trump. <laughs> I think a lot of people try to make it seem like racism, white nationalism started with Trump. But yeah. I think even without research, especially if you're a person of color, you know, he did not invent this. And if anything, he's just a symptom of this. Yeah, no, it's been going on since uh, immigration to the United States. Well, after the pilgrims, <laughs> after the the British, um, you know, colonialists. But yeah, it's something that has anchored and uh, been foundational to our country, but in part because of the white over black uh, binary being the main focus. Uh, and in many instances in history, rightly so, that we don't have as strong of an understanding of how politics runs on nativist racism. 
It's just that Trump, the rise of Trump was unique in that that was the cornerstone of his campaign, was actually being a nativist, racist, white nationalist. Uh, and it, it was part of a larger movement around the globe of um, essentially um, being anti-Muslim uh, and anti-immigrant and anti-refugee. So I just think Trump mimicked what was already going on in Europe, right? You see the rise of these um, neo-Nazi um, nativist um, movements uh, and, you know, you see Brexit, et cetera. I mean, it just, it's, it goes on and on. And also, can you clarify for us politics of the body? Because from context, it sounds like it's related to not only environmental, physical harm that some of these communities might face, but also emotional stressors. But can you actually elaborate exactly what it is? Sure. One of the first ways we need to think about the politics of the body is that Racism, sexism, classism, etc., rest on the notion that those that are subordinate in those hierarchies, be they race, gender, class, for example, are more embodied. So they're more in their body, right? So blacks are athletes, but they're not that smart, right? Women um, are to be looked at, uh, ogled, harassed, raped. Right, but we don't want to hear them speak and and hear them speak their mind. Um, white people are intellectually superior and more civil and more rational than uh, people of color, whether it's the people they colonize abroad or the people they settler colonize here or the immigrants that come in. And so, uh, we owe that insight to uh, women of color intersectionality scholars. But I know one of your questions is also about Michel Foucault, who looms large in my book, especially towards the end, when I try to weave it all together theoretically. And one of the reasons Michel Foucault's work is so important, even though my book devotes many pages to critiquing him, at least or trying to expand on him or extend his work, is because he was the first uh, major theorist to popularize how power is wielded by managing and governing large populations. And a lot of that has to do with uh, managing how they take care of their body, how they reproduce their body for the workforce, how prisoners discipline and, and police themselves and their own movements, um, issues of sexuality, etc. So you can't really talk about politics of the body without uh, bringing in those intersectionality scholars and uh, Foucault. But uh, I also think that Foucault was a great opportunity for me to uh, try to make race more centered, uh, resistance more centered, material inequalities more centered, uh, and non-European contexts more centered uh, in his paradigm. This actually explains for me then why I often see theorists refer to black bodies. Yes. It sounds like it's also a criticism how we're embodying them. We just dehumanize them into a body, right? Yes, exactly. And that's one of the justifications for violence or mass incarceration or deportation or um, treating them like a COVID virus, right? It's this notion that 
those others are embodied in a way that we, white people, white Americans, white Europeans are not. And that's why we have to also think about the gender component, the sexualized component of this, right? So if we bring it back to the COVID example, what's one of the reasons that Asian American women have been disproportionately attacked, uh, assaulted, uh, and victimized uh, by COVID-19 related racism? It's, it's because women are highly sexualized uh, and embodied. And so I think that's one of the reasons uh, they were targeted by the massacre in Atlanta and also uh, overall by the, the statistics of hate violence. What's the significance of the title, Refusing Death? The significance is that these Asian and Latinx immigrant activists, uh, and by Asian I mean it's a mostly uh, Filipinx-led uh, movement, but there's other Asian ethnics involved, and then by uh, Latinx, I mean mostly Mexican immigrants. It's because they are being prematurely killed by all of the uh, pollution coming out of the goods movement apparatus that exists in the United States, in our global cities, and in lots of other countries that take imports. So by goods movement, I mean that in order for you and I to buy things, Sam, at Best Buy, you know, Costco, (laughs) Target, uh, furniture stores, whatever it is, uh, to buy cars. All of that stuff is shipped into the United States now. We're no longer a manufacturing country, right? So uh, a lot of it comes from manufacturing nations like China, and they come in through shipping ports. What do those ships run on diesel? They uh, have to transport all those goods onto trucks, uh, trucks run on diesel. They have to put it on trains to cart it across the country, right? Uh, those run on diesel. Uh, and um, you have freeways and uh, train yards, right, uh, on which those modes of transport travel. And um, related to the pollution from goods movement is pollution from oil. So many uh, folks don't know because LA doesn't uh, publicize it, is that LA is the city of oil. We're the largest urban oil field in the United States. And uh, so in order to prop up an oil industry, you have to have all those trucks um, and other forms of transport move all that oil, right? You got to store that oil in oil drums. You need to refine that oil, right? So you have all these oil refineries also surrounding these communities that are already choking from diesel uh, plumes um, from all those sources I mentioned and, um, and all the extra pollution that comes with the movement of oil. So they are prematurely dying of asthma, cancer, Um, some of the studies have shown that there's a linkage to heart disease, bronchitis, um, you know, and just in children in particular, right? Just, uh, less capacity, uh, of, of their lungs. Um, and so they're prematurely dying. And one of the most interesting and astute definitions of racism comes from a scholar named Ruthie Gilmore. And her definition, I'm paraphrasing, is that racism is the state or extra-legally sanctioned 
exposure of people of color to premature death, the possibility of premature death, right? And so given all of these factors and that these activists know that they're being slowly and quietly killed, right? The longer the state and corporate America doesn't care and doesn't do anything, that their activism seemed best encapsulated by the phrase refusing death. And in that light, then, what does environmental justice mean when racism is about premature death? Uh, Environmental justice means all people's ability, but in particular, it addresses people of color and low-income people, low-income white people, um, their ability to live, work, play, worship, and attend school in communities free of environmental contamination, hazards, toxins, um, and the ability not to have to face premature death. So what made you even curious about this or think to research this? When I was in college, I was really busy doing campus and community organizing around Prop 187 and Prop 209 in particular. So just to remind uh, listeners, Prop 187 essentially legalized um, surveillance and um, told undocumented immigrants, which were mostly racialized as Mexican, right, Latinx, that uh, they could not attend school or use health services um, precisely because they're undocumented. And it basically allowed all of us to kind of surveil these um, illegals, right, and prevent them from utilizing those services, um, and which is basically just a stepping stone towards deportation or uh, the carceral state, right, the detention centers. Um, and then... Um, 209 was the gutting of affirmative action policies in education, contracting, housing, uh, and the labor market across the state of California. So I was really involved in those. And along the way, I got pulled into a campaign uh, to protect the Diné and the Hopi tribes in Arizona. And it was because their land is uh, thoroughly contaminated by uranium and other uh, toxins. And I just remember being very, very compelled by that work, but it was very short-lived because I was really having to focus on 187 and 209. Uh, And so I remember always wanting to go back to that Um, and, and just learning about how one of the major ways in which indigenous peoples, um, first nations have been, uh, basically subjugated is by way of environmental racism. Um, you know, not only do you segregate and remove them onto uh, separate lands, but they're barren lands that are highly contaminated with, you know, uh, uh, fatal or illness-causing uh, pollutants. How did that happen? How did the land get contaminated with uranium? Well, it's mostly because the U.S. government moved them onto lands that were already contaminated, right? They're not going to move them onto the highest priced, highest valued land, right? So you just find the the most uh, unproductive or the most poisonous land and you just remove them onto there. 
So they already knew. They already knew. And sometimes they do it after the fact, right? Just because they have the power and the ability to do it, or they're just adding on to the existing contamination, right? Um, But uh, environmental racism affects all groups. Uh, And so um, then what happened is that after I finished my first book, which was on pretty different topic, though there are unifying themes. You know, it was on um, looking at Korean America and Korean immigrants through the, and the LA unrest through the lens of uh, U.S. imperialism, right? Neo-imperialism. I decided that I wanted to do something where I could mix organizing and scholarship because I missed organizing, right? Um, And I hadn't done it in a long time precisely because of the PhD postdoc, getting a job, tenure track, uh, and having kids, right. Um, getting married and having kids. So, um, I decided that I was going to meld the two by coming back to, so I was coming back to LA because my first job was in Boston and I was coming back to LA, which I consider my quote unquote hometown, whatever that means. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to, um, find the major communities that are dealing with environmental injustices, environmental racism in LA. And I want to do an ethnography interview-based study with them. And so it was a little bit unconventional in that normally you have already been involved with the movement and really gotten to know everybody and established the trust and relationships, which is so central to ethnography prior to starting the study. But I couldn't work it out that way precisely because I had been gone for so long. I had, I had been out of LA for a really long time because of grad school and jobs. So the timing was such that I had to kind of just do it, you know, um, start whole cloth new. And so that's what I did. But, uh, prior to even starting, I had read some environmental justice literature and I remember making connections to the Hopi and the Dine and then also, um, making connections to my passion for understanding that if we didn't care for uh, nature and the people who live within it, that we're in dire trouble, right? Um, and then also connecting it to the research I was reading, which essentially said that we can't fully understand racism unless you center environmental injustices. So we already mentioned neoliberalism, and I know it's a topic that came up your first time around and in our other episodes. But recently, even NPR did a four-part series on capitalism and dedicated one whole episode just to neoliberalism. So even from our first talk, the conversation has shifted and people seem more aware and questioning of this unspoken system. So can you explain for us neoliberalism and how it's different? from the capitalism and policies that existed prior? So when we're talking about neoliberal capitalism today, the way that neoliberalism differs from the past is that in the past we had capitalism and liberalism. And these are just fancy words for the lessons that you and I learned, Sam, in grade school or high school, all this stuff about how we should have uh, individual rights, right? That every individual uh, is uh, entitled to liberty, justice, right? The pursuit of happiness. And 
that that comes in the form of individual rights. So one of the ways that we could think about it is that because capitalism by necessity, by definition, creates major inequalities, economically, racially, gender-wise, etc., that you have to have some social programs, you have to have some government apparatus to put band-aids on the inevitable impoverished populations, the inevitable impoverished of color populations, because we often use race as the main way to divide and to hierarchize people in this country. You're going to need a some kind of social welfare state. So what we had in the past uh, was obviously more of a manufacturing capitalism up until about the 1970s, okay, Uh, where we made things uh, for export and use within the United States. And you also had the development of a social welfare state most famously popularized probably by Franklin Delano Roosevelt in response to the Great Depression, right, 1920s, 1930s. So you have the rise of the government intervening to create jobs, to ensure your money is safe at the bank and that the bank can't just declare bankruptcy, right? Um, That you have social security for retirement, that you have the ability to join unions and things like that. Now, one of the things that's an important side note is that uh, people of color were originally excluded from all of these social welfare benefits, um, and it was only later on that they were added in. Uh, So even in the social welfare state, there's issues, right, racial inequalities. But that's the capitalism that we had. And then starting in about the 1970s and the 1980s, we deindustrialized. Okay, and we have economic restructuring. So we become no longer uh, a manufacturing based capitalism, but now a service based capitalism, a service um, economy. And service economies essentially are about high skilled, high paid service, low skilled, low wage service. I don't like to call them low skilled. I actually don't think they're low skilled, but that's kind of the mainstream discourse. Okay. Um, I'll call them low wage essential workers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, uh, you have the rise of tech, the information age, uh, and you have all these other, um, professionals, especially under the Reagan era of the 1980s, whether it's law, entertainment, uh, medicine, uh, engineering, computer science, right? Um, starting to define the uh, higher paid, higher skilled service sector. And in our global cities and all across the globalized world, you need low paid essential workers to service these uh, the, the higher paid sector, right? So you need janitors, you need cooks, you need farm workers, right? And this is also to serve the middle class, right? Um, the middle class also comes from that uh, college-educated sector for the most part. Um, and so uh, you need nanny maids, right? You need gardeners, a dishwasher. I mean, you know, the list goes on and on, right? Um, and so that was what essentially 
became American capitalism after that point. And it's at this same time that you see under Reagan, the Reagan era, the rise of neoliberalism, which is no longer about, well, we have laissez-faire capitalism, but we still need a certain social welfare state to address all the injustices and inequalities um, that extend and flow from capitalism, right? And racial capitalism. Now we're just going to let it be lazy, lazy, lazy fair. <laughs> okay. Um, such t- that the market is essentially the altar that we all genuflect to. And that we don't need these big government programs or social welfare programs anymore because individuals should just be able to pull up their bootstraps pull up their pants, (laughs) you know, and um, essentially just make it on their own. Okay. And so neoliberalism is uh, essentially saying that uh, we're neglecting you, Um, you know, and and it's even, uh, it's even more fiercely tied to individualism, right? In the sense that, um, you have the rise of respectability politics, right? Like if you would just be respectable and, um, you know, do the right thing, then, you know, you could capitalize on all this wealth and largesse, uh, in the American economy. And, um, you know, you get to make choices as consumers about anything and everything you want. Right. And that's the beauty of America. Right, <laughs> you get to choose like what color phone you want and what what music you want to download onto your Spotify playlist, and you know, um, and so in the broader picture, neoliberalism also means uh, um, basically no regulation or weak regulation, right, of industry of Wall Street, um, and uh, with the industry part, obviously that directly affects. Um, the communities I study, but Wall Street is also related. It always is in some way. Um, you also have the rise of free trade uh, policies like NAFTA. Um, and we're still in that era, right? Which is now about ensuring that the most advanced countries and the richest countries in the world, they run the World Bank and the IMF, and they basically bully developing nations, the global South, into privatizing everything and allowing U.S uh, investors, European, Japanese investors, right. Into their countries, capital, all of that, um, to make everything for profit and to ensure, uh, basically, uh, a modern day slave-like labor force in these developing nations. So it's very complicated, Sam, like it, it touches on so many different things from ideology to policy, um, to, um, basically, uh, political strategizing, right? And you can never separate race and, and class groupings from any of this stuff. Um, but it kind of makes sense if you recognize that America has always been based on this notion that, oh, the state and the economy are separate, but they're not, right? Capitalism and individual rights have always been tied up together, right? So that hasn't changed. So you mentioned racial hierarchy as a way to classify people and racialized capitalism. So it makes sense why then these environmental activists are 
immigrant activists. But why did it tend to be more women? Yeah, that's a great question. So it tended to be more women because they are the ones that pay attention or are tasked with paying attention to their children's health and their schooling needs. They're in these traditional heteronormative households, they're the ones that are basically responsible for child rearing, right? More than the uh, male partners uh, who are off at work all day long doing the essential low paid work that we just talked about, right? Um, and so they're the ones that notice their kids unable to breathe or having attacks uh, that they don't fully understand. Because many of them shared with me that when they lived in Mexico, or the Philippines, they didn't have that problem. And so they then realize that, oh, this is not just some fluke. They um, connect with community organizations, they uh, network with their own neighbors, and they recognize, oh my goodness, this is caused by the oil refineries. This is caused by the freeways. This is caused by the ports and the train yards. Um, So this is political. And so that's how a lot of times the women get involved. Now, another way they get involved is through the schools, because in these lower income and or immigrant communities of color, the schools are often located really close to freeways or really close to uh, gas companies, oil companies, uh, storage drums. And so um, there's a lot of environmental contamination that happens on the school campus. And so they're thinking my kid can't even function in the neighborhood and then the kid can't even function at school. And that is a, a major um, source of uh, stress and uh, disquiet for these mothers because one of the other things they want to ensure is that their children achieve socioeconomic mil- mobility through doing well at school. How is that possible if you're choking, wheezing, wheezing and fainting? at school. So, and then these mothers learn, oh, the schools, they don't even have air filters or all they do is get a couple of air filters here and there. That's the solution, you know? So uh, they start blending their activism for school reform with their activism for environmental justice. Uh, And so you can see why women and mothers are at the forefront of this. Now, one of the things I do want to state Uh, as an important caveat is that it's not always engineered by mothering. I mean, mothering is a major part of it, but we have to understand and remember that these uh, immigrants are also fully aware of the nativist racism, forever foreigner bashing, these stereotypes of the women of color and the men of color in their communities Uh, and the discrimination they face at their work or in day-to-day life. They're fully aware of that. And they're fully aware of um, the deportation regime uh, that also existed under Obama and prior to that, obviously. So they see all of these different injustices as uh, happening to them, either because of broader racism or broader classism. So I I think it's important to say that if the men were more often at home, they probably would get involved more. And why did it end up being mainly immigrant communities when 
poor whites or the black community can also suffer from contamination? Yeah, I mean, there's environmental justice movements waged by uh, African-Americans for many decades in Los Angeles. But the communities that have been most active in the environmental justice fight near the port and near that that sort of port industrial slash oil refinery vortex that I studied in the South Bay uh, and Long Beach those were mostly uh, immigrants of color. Now, um, there has been more recently this fight waged by South Central farmers uh, who are both uh, mostly Latinx and Black um, because there uh, was a South Central farm, a community garden that uh, was rebought by the original landowner and the farmers were pushed out and the farm was raised over. And so that was definitely um, an important fight that African-Americans were involved in. Um, But in the area that I was studying, it's mostly uh, immigrants. And, And part of this has to do with I'm not sure how many people know this, but there's been quite a bit of black flight out of LA. Uh, And that happened especially after the 1992 unrest. But um, a lot of black Americans moved to um, the Inland Empire, like Riverside, um, and or blacks have left for the South or, or other cities across the US. And as you know, the influx of immigrants hasn't stopped and it, it won't stop right, from Asia and Latin America in particular, but also, you know, from the Caribbean, Africa, et cetera. Um, So Los Angeles is a gateway city. It's not just a global city, but a gateway city, right, where one of the first places you can stop uh, from the Pacific, when you cross the Pacific. Uh, And and also California, because it used to be Mexico, (laughs) is connected to Mexico, Central America, South America, right? So you have immigration coming up through there. So, um, so yeah, but, uh, I do want to emphasize that, um, environmental justice issues have mostly been fought by people of color because environmental injustices have mostly been about environmental racism. So that means that even middle-class communities of color have often been more environmentally polluted on than low-income impoverished white communities. That isn't always true but it is often the case. Um, And African-Americans, Black Americans have been active in environmental justice fights in LA, but in lots of other areas of the United States. Uh, And so I definitely, by focusing on immigrants who have not really been focused on at all with regard to environmental justice, I'm in no way negating the Black American legacy of fighting environmental racism. And there's much more documentation about white flight. And so when you speak of impoverished poor communities. I can't really think of an area of LA where it's like an impoverished white community. Yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, either some of them may be homeless, right? We have a a large unhoused population and only growing in LA, but in terms of, yes, a community that you and I could identify that's of mostly or, you know, strictly uh, low-income poor whites, I can't think of one either. 
Yeah, poverty is very racialized in Los Angeles. It is. It is. And you can't live in Los Angeles if you don't have some money. I mean, it is such an expensive city. It's ridiculous, right? People just have to look at housing and condo prices just to get a glimpse. Did you notice a divergence even amongst these communities of color where it was mostly newer immigrants and the ones who've been here for generations were less vested or had already moved? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I think it went the other way. It was immigrants who had been here longer that typically were politically involved in the environmental justice fight. And that's because, it. first of all, when you're an immigrant, and especially if you come um, low income, right, uh, that your focus is just survival, right? Where are we going to live? You know, how are we going to eat? Uh, what jobs are we going to work? Uh, where are my kids going to go to school? So that's the focus. And that takes quite a while to establish. Then you have the need for politicization, which takes a while. And that requires learning about why your kid has over time gotten sick or asthma, why over time your neighbors are being stricken with cancer, uh, bronchitis, et cetera. And then you need that time to figure out, is this just some something specific to LA having poor air quality because of all the cars and the smog? Oh no, it's actually worse in and near our communities of color. And so that takes a time, take some time to learn and, and address that. And then you recognize, oh, what are the air quality management district, Caltrans, Metro LA, city state governments? What are BP, Arco, Valero Refinery, Tesoro? What are they doing about all this, right? Oh, nothing? <laughs> we can testify till we're blue in the face and not much changes. Oh no, I'm not having that. Right? My kid can't focus at school because they can't even play outside and be mobile because the air is too terrible or there's explosions, you know, at the factory next door, or we found, um, uh, methane under the soil of the mm. playground. <laughs> you know? So, you know, they, they, it's, it's after that process that, that they become involved. Now for the Asian, uh, mostly Filipinx immigrants, it was slightly different in that more of the ones that selectively get into the environmental justice movement. And I want to underscore that part because I'm not studying all Mexican immigrants in LA, nor am I studying all Filipinx and Asian Pacific or Islander immigrants in LA. I'm not. These are the people that just got involved in the environmental justice movement. And uh, they tended to be more middle-class. They came middle-class. They lived in more middle-class Carson, which is a mixed uh, ethno-racial community in LA. And so many of them had come with more awareness of the ways in which U.S. colonization had uh, essentially contaminated the Philippines, right? With the U.S. military bases leaking out uh, toxins and chemicals um, from the machinery of war and military exercises for war, right? So one of the waterways in the Philippines is contaminated because the U.S. military base there just released all of this uh, deadly uh, contaminants into the water. So, you know, there's more knowledge of this. And 
there's more knowledge of all the ways in which U.S. colonization hurt the Philippines, right? It's different in the case of Mexico in that the U.S. is more of a neo-imperialist influence and power over Mexico, but not a direct colonizer, right? Um, you know, after the uh, initial internal colonization right, of, of Mexico. Um, so, uh, so when the Filipinx immigrants came, many of them were already political in other movements like anti-Marcos, labor, student, uh, women's movements. Okay. So they were already kind of ready made to become activists when they moved to a place like Carson or the South Bay, Torrance, and they're surrounded by oil refineries and, you know, they recognize that there's a great deal of sickness in the community, right? So um, many of the Mexican immigrants were impoverished in Mexico. So uh, it is true that, you know, when you're impoverished, uh, you have to focus on survival, right? You're, you're not necessarily uh, privileged to be able to partake in political movements. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you'll help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. So you already defined for us what environmental racism is, and you gave us some examples. But I think for listeners, this is still a new concept that they're trying to process as they're listening to this. So you already gave us examples about asthma, birth defects, infant deaths, cancer, but can you give us some facts about how that differs for communities of color versus white communities? One thing I'll say, for example, is Wilmington. Wilmington is a mostly working class Latinx community, uh, mostly Mexican immigrants, but some Central American as well. And in Wilmington, they actually started monitoring benzene. They had, the state had never monitored benzene before. Um, but one of the reasons they did that in response to activist pressure was because the cancer rates in Wilmington were three times higher than the allowable rates of uh, cancer. Uh, in any community. So, for example, um, if the state or government, I'm trying to remember the exact statistic, but if the state or government allows for um, 10 in 1 million deaths, right, um, from environmental pollution, in um, Wilmington, they were experiencing 1,000 in 1 million deaths, which is incredibly uh, unequal, okay, and incredibly unjust, right? And so in comparison, you probably have in white communities uh, less than 10 in 
every 1 million deaths due to uh, hazards from the built environment, right? Meaning oil refineries, for example, okay? So um, that's why Wilmington, which is one of the cities I studied, has become such a focal point, right? Um, Because to have um, 1,000 cancer-stricken residents per 1 million. So I should emphasize that it's it's cancer, uh, it's not necessarily death, but as many of us know, it is very hard to survive cancer or to survive it over and over and over again, okay? And one thing I should say is that the National Clean Air Act goal is of one in one million uh, cancer cases, okay? The cancer cases were three orders of magnitude higher of uh, the goal of one in one million. Um, and Wilmington is in the, in the entire state of California. It's in the top fifth percentile in highest pollution exposure and the highest level of social vulnerability. Can you then also connect for us obesity and heart disease as it pertains to environmental justice? Because I think having read your book now is a no-brainer, so I wouldn't even know I have to explain that to people, but it's the curse of knowledge. Now I know what I know. But for people who don't know, especially when they kind of judge low-income communities of color about their obesity they don't necessarily think about environmental contamination and how that could lead to obesity. So can you connect those dots for us? Okay. What's social vulnerability? Well, you're socially vulnerable because you can't work out. You can't go outside. You can't go to school, right? Because the air quality is so bad and so poor, okay? Now, one of the things that um, obesity is, is connected to is the fact that if you have very poor air quality. And not just that, but you also have a concrete setup where there's very little uh, in the way of walkability. There's very little in the way of parks and green space. Okay. There's very little in the way of trees, right? Trees help clear out the carbon in the air. Okay. So it's all interrelated, right? Um, Then you can't work out. You can't exercise. If you can't exercise, you become obese. Okay. In these lower income communities, of color, you also have food insecurity. And so you don't have fresh produce from Whole Foods, (laughs) you know, all over low-income communities. Okay. Um, And so that's also contributing to obesity. Okay. If, If there's not the ability to access and afford fresh whole foods. Okay. Um, so there's a lot of processed food, a lot of fast food, right? It's, it's inexpensive. Um, though it's actually getting quite expensive in my view, you know, it is much more expensive now. So I think even that is an issue. Um, then you have the issue of heart disease, which, uh, was shown by scholars, uh, USC, UCLA have done studies that because of the particulate matter in diesel, it, it you know, it, if you look at diesel and it's black, clouds. That's soot, right? The very finest particulate matter of that soot lodges into little babies' children's lungs and also the lungs of adults. And it's because of that particulate matter lodging into lungs that it affects the heart. So you have increased rates of heart disease in these uh, environmentally compromised uh, communities. So 
everything's interconnected. And that's what people need to realize is that when people think of the environment, they just think of air, water, soil, landscape. When you think of the environment, you have to think of communities and in particular of low-income and people of color. That's the environment. So everything I heard about diesel when I was growing up that is clean and it's good for the environment, that's all not true? What do you think, Sam? <laughs> I'll be a good teacher and throw it back at you, Socratic style. Well, I just wanted to make that point. Obviously, it's not good for you because I don't want people to miss that point. Right. Because especially depending on what age you are, you did grow up thinking that it was clean. And I know a lot of people my age and older who still think that is clean, who bought into all that stuff and aren't aware of even all the class action lawsuits that have happened over mm. this, right? Yeah. No, diesel kills. <laughs> um Diesel uh, is responsible for all of these elevated rates of cancer and illness that we've already rattled off. Uh, diesel is causing all of these climate crises. Uh, in part, diesel is causing all these climate crises that we face right now, whether it's droughts, in extreme drought, extreme wildfire, extreme heat domes, whether it's um, an oil pipeline fire in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, the ocean. This is insanity. It's apocalyptic. We should have been paying attention a long time ago when Al Gore first made his movie Inconvenient Truth, right? Upon which we've expanded enormously, right? In terms of our knowledge base and our organizing and all that. But everybody has to understand that. Like, why would we trust industry or uh, a government that has all of this revolving door uh, all this revolving door sort of um, uh, ways of filling seats, right? So just like they used to say, oh, smoking's not that bad for you, right? Philip Morris, smoking's not that bad, you know? Um, you don't need seatbelts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, why would we trust uh, a political economy based on making as much profit as possible? And to speak to how connected and how accurate looking at air pollution is at predicting poverty. Uh, a friend of mine who works at a power company, I won't give the name, mm -hmm. says they use pollution numbers to see who qualifies for discounts on their power bill because it's that accurate. Oh my goodness. And the other way, if you're on Medi-Cal, they will test children for lead contamination. Because if you are poor and on Medi-Cal, you are very likely to be living in a part of the city where you will be contaminated with lead. Yeah. And when my kid was born and we took the lead test for him, and I just thought that was a normal test every kid took. And then come to find out, I talked to other parents who are on private insurance. They had no idea because it's uncommon because doctors who don't serve the Medi-Cal community there's no point for them to test for that. Meaning then it speaks to this redlining, segregation and color lines that seems to be still alive and well in Los Angeles and really to the rest of the country. Yeah. And it just shows that environmental injustice, environmental racism and classism are the reason those kids have lead in their bodies okay, and asbestos as well. The Flint water crisis, right? Yeah. I mean, we the, the the Dakota Access Pipeline across Native lands. I, I mean, it, it it goes on and on. 
Um, even Pacific Islander communities, we don't talk about Pacific Islander communities um, through U.S. settler colonialism, right? They're, they are contaminated by the bases in Guam, Samoa, etc. You know, I mean, it's, and military exercises, right? Um, war and the, the war machine is the biggest polluter in the world. Um, we can use examples like Agent Orange uh, in the war in Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos, right? It's, I mean, look at the damage that is done to this day, you know, and this is many decades ago, okay? And, and people still suffering the effects of it. L- look at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the atomic bomb, people still to this day suffering radiation exposure and, and death and illness as a result. And then you have all the ships, the carriers that are constantly patrolling the ocean, speaking to your point about diesel and emissions that are every day just casually yes. becoming the yes. daily biggest contaminator of the world. Yeah, no, exactly. And then now I want to just make sure that I'm being clear. When I say that when we think about the environment, we also need to think about uh, communities of color and uh, people in the global South. I'm not excising ecosystems and animal life. Uh, All of this is a part of our world for a reason. We need each other, right? There's a huge bee die-off because of, um, you know, the the pesticides that um, are basically killing them, right? Uh, That we use, like, uh, what's that weed, the weed killer? um, Roundup. Yeah, Roundup, yeah. Um, Roundup, Roundup Ready, right? I mean, we're not going to have food if we don't have bees to pollinate the crops. I, you know, like all of this is interconnected, right? So one of the things about the the naval ships and the sonic uh, testing that they do underwater, it's basically killing or rendering insane the ocean marine life, you know? And, and, and so that shouldn't happen either. That can't happen either, right? Um, and, and so we need to think about the ways in which racial capitalism, neoliberalism, white supremacy, you know, um, global white supremacy is essentially uh, choking everyone and everything to death. I I don't really know how to explain. I mean, it sounds very dramatic, but I actually think it's apt. Actually, your book discussed how many of the activists you were working with were apolitical outside of local politics or how sometimes they were even registered as Republicans. Yes. I've wondered about that myself with local immigrant communities, but your book really clarifies something for me and even everything you just spoke about right now. Because if you're an immigrant who cares about environmental justice, you've probably had politicians from both parties support some of these corporate polluters. So it's much harder to differentiate the nuances of the two parties. And I've seen this as well with the Korean American community. It's really a coin flip sometimes, which party you end up in, because the church is so vital for many immigrants, you just fall in line with what everyone else is doing at your church. Sort of like when you're taking a test and you look over at your neighbor's answers. I think we take for granted that the two parties don't seem all that different the lower you are on the social ladder. And then speaking even more broadly, when we're talking about racial capitalism and white supremacy, these things don't care about political parties. Mm -hmm. They are working hegemonically. And so your truth when you're being oppressed is very different from when you are higher on the social ladder and when you have a higher social position. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are all a part of the equation. I think another thing to add is that when you are a group of people who see racism and classism as thoroughly embodied and thoroughly rooted in emotional injustices, that one of the reasons why they were social conservatives is because of their rootedness in embodiment. So for example, you shouldn't have two uh, same-sex people loving each other or marrying each other, right? The tradition is that you have a cisgender man body and a cisgender woman body <laughs> procreating and, and giving birth, right? Um, that uh, you should not abort a child, right? Uh, so it's not an issue of choice. It's an issue of being pro-life, right? Mm -hmm. That you should allow that baby to come to term. Um, and so I think that fuses both the church doctrine you were talking about, as mm -hmm. well as a focus on embodiment as a centerpiece of your political ideology and identity. Okay. I think another thing is that the Latinx immigrants in particular, they were also not interested. Oh, this was also true of the Filipinx and other AAPI activists. They were not as interested in politicians who could not or did not embody their community in some way, shape, or form. So if you're some federal person out in the DC Beltway, you don't know anything about Carson, what it's like to live there. You don't know anything about it, what it's like to live in Wilmington or um, Long Beach, West Long Beach or Torrance, South Bay, then I have no time and, and, and I have no space for you, you know, that so much of their politics was about who can understand what we're going through because they're, they're smelling our air. They're breathing this air. They're seeing this air, right? They're seeing this school and how close it is, like a hop from the freeway. Um, and right next to it, this, this truck washing company and this gas company, um, you know, it's, it's the politicians who could embody their community, their lived experience, who were the ones who could most understand. So that's why maybe rather than saying they were apolitical, I just think they were less interested in political, uh, offices and politicians outside of the local or outside at least of Sacramento, the people that had some say and had some influence. So one of the exceptions, as you probably remember reading, was Obama. A lot of the uh, uh, Asian and Latinx immigrants, they liked Obama. And I think it's in part because obviously he's a person of color, but also because he's from an immigrant family. Um, and Obama just has that joie de vivre. He has that X factor, right? He He is like, saturated with charisma. <laughs> so, and, and he's really intelligent, right? So I just think there are all these other factors. They basically um, got turned off by him uh, with the lack of work on immigration reform in his first term. Uh, and then the, the rumors about why are these deportations happening under Obama. So uh, I think that's why there's all these, these other factors. But I will say that the AAPI community, the vast majority of them are Democrat, despite the fact that both parties prop up racial capitalism and they're paid out by lobbyists yeah. and have revolving doors, right? They were still Democrats because the Democrats have at least uh, 
tried to address environmental injustice uh, in a way that the Republicans pretty much never have. Now, we've been speaking a lot about fuel. We've been talking about cars. So we're aware how driving a car can increase pollution. But can you talk to us about when you don't drive a car, when you don't have a car, how that can affect you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, a lot of the Latinx immigrants were carless. And the way that affected them was that it made it difficult for them to get places. And they would often have to rely on networks of ride sharing, carpooling, public transportation, walking. And so, for example, if you're outside walking, yes, you're exercising, but you're breathing in highly toxic air. So that is causing more illness, right? Um, And decreased lung capacity over time, uh, if not other problems. Uh, Then you have the issue of taking longer to get places. And if it takes longer to do things and get places, the less you're able to income generate, right? Generate income. Uh, the less, the more penalties you have to pay for lateness, right? Or delays and bills getting paid and things like that. Um, so that becomes a stressor, right? And stressors cause illness. Stressors lead to premature death. And that's why that emotional power dynamic between the elites from corporations and regulatory agencies of the government and these residents was so stark to them, Right. Um, and that's why they really resented the kind of emotional power that the top down would unleash. For example, normalizing their apathy as professional and singling out and racializing and gendering the, the immigrants and women's crying or anger as, uh, outsized, right. Or stereotypical to their, to their race or race, gender grouping, um, or that the top-down would pretend to care, so they would co-opt the language of the environmental justice movement of the politics of care. We care. Oh, we'll give you that sound wall. Yes, you know, we care, right? Uh, We'll put in that air filter. We care. When broadly the system doesn't care, that's the whole point of the system. That's how it operates, right? So those are all stressors, right? And then, um, I mean, this is a little bit unrelated, but the residents and activists were also highly stressed by constant noise pollution, um, living so close to these, uh, these industries in the, in the freeways, uh, train yards, right? Then there's constant light pollution, which also causes stressors. So light from the refineries, light from all the other, uh, you know, the rail yards and things like that, that are constantly on, right? Because goods movement doesn't end, right? I mean, it just, it's a, it's a 24 seven cycle. So, um, you know, stressors are caused by that as well. Now, the other thing is that um, when you don't have a car, you have to worry about where the schools are sited. So there was this major issue that came up with uh, LABACA, Long Beach Alliance for Children with Asthma, which is that there was going to be an elementary school, uh, I believe is elementary, I could be wrong, that was going to be built right next to the freeway. And of course, LABACA decided as an organization to oppose it because that's what they do. But then the mothers stopped them and said, you know what? I know that typically we would oppose this siting, but because we don't have cars, we need this school because it's walkable. We can get there and take our kids and pick them up easily. 
And so these are the false choices of neoliberalism, neoliberal capitalism that we introduced earlier. It doesn't have to be this way. It really does not have to be this way. It's just that neoliberal capitalism and neoliberal racism makes it this way, okay? That we should be moving and running on clean fuels, like the green fuels, right? We've already started with CNG buses, right? Compressed natural gas. I mean, that that was like one of the fights actually waged by uh, mostly Latinx, but also some Black uh, Angelinos because they called it transit racism, right? That you had these, oh, that was the other way in which um, not having a car. So if you have to rely more on public transportation and only until recently, um, buses ran on diesel. Up until recently, buses ran on, you know, the black, the, just the black soot, right? That just shrouds school buses and public buses, right? So you're just waiting for the bus and you're just inhaling all these contaminants. Yeah, you're, yeah. All of that is lodging into your lungs and slowly becoming cancer cells, right? And tumors, cancerous tumors. So, um, yeah, so that's another way in which not having a car. So anyway, going back to the Labaka, sorry, there's so many complex layers to this. Because <laughs> it's so interconnected. It is. It's very interconnected. And I don't like missing a beat, you know, but, um, so the mother said we need a walkable school. So these false choices of neoliberalism are about presuming we have to run on fossil fuels. We absolutely do not. And then if we run on fossil fuels, why is all of that concentrated in low income communities of color, immigrant communities? Doesn't have to be. You know, um, why do schools have to be located right next to the, you know, biggest polluters? They don't have to be right. So all of these, the false choices of neoliberalism make it seem like, okay, it's either you die premature deaths because your kids go to school, uh, you know, right next to a freeway, or you, uh, make sure you have access to education by having the school be within walking distance. And why is that the choice, right? It's a false choice. I can't help but connect this globally because just as those without cars in urban areas become victims of the air pollution, you've already mentioned this, but the same could be said of the global South who buy less of the goods, but have to face the consequences of Western demands, Western growth and consumption, which you spoke about, the goods movement. And even thinking about LA, I see a lot of especially Richard Angelino's talking about, oh, we used to have such dirty air here. You know, sometimes I'll see a meme about LA and it'll show the smog decades ago and they'll brag about how much we've cleaned the air or just about how we've cleaned up America over time. And yeah, maybe you cleaned it up a little bit, but a lot of it is it became clean because you moved those manufacturers overseas, abroad. So somebody <laughs> else is consuming our pollutants, right? And then even domestically, when we talk about LA and how the car pollution has gotten cleaned up, has it really? Or did you just create freeways around all the poor communities and just shifted it so that only they face the consequences of the pollution? Because I remember even years ago, they were talking about a freeway through Beverly Hills. And it's like, that's never going to happen. And it hasn't happened, right? Oh, never, ha never, no, it'll never happen. Yeah. And so when you moved to LA, 
and you first get here, even people will tell you what side of the freeway you are on will determine how nice the neighborhood is, meaning the closer you are to these freeways and to these busy intersections, the worse the area is. And it's kind of like the chicken or the egg, right? It's like, did those freeways get there because those were poor communities or do we place poor people near freeways? Or do they become low-income communities because freeways are there? Or is it the other way? We place freeways there because they are low-income. It seems like it's a little of both where we push poor communities to the polluted areas, but because they are poor communities, we will also offset our pollutions and our dirty manufacturers to those areas as well, which makes the community worse and more impoverished, which makes it easier to exploit the community even further a vicious downward spiral. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and housing is cheaper and rents are cheaper in those areas precisely because of the hazards, right? The, the large concentration of hazards. Yeah. So one, one thing that you reminded me of is that, um, and, and so this is kind of just to set up context before I get into your specific point, is that one of the big fights that, uh, Black Americans in LA actually waged was against the 105 freeway because originally when they had routed it, the 105 is a freeway that goes east to west uh, in LA, uh, further south of downtown LA, uh, which is, I guess, supposedly the center. We don't have a city city center. Um, but because of their activism against that environmental racism, they uh, were able to kind of reroute the 105. Now, what's important to remember is that we talk about Robert E. Lee and other Confederate officers as racist monuments. But we need to understand that the freeway is a racist monument. Mm. Those always run through communities of color. Almost always, right? And yes, in LA, you have freeways like the 405 in nicer communities, you know, and and I mean, that's a little bit impossible to avoid just because no one can get anywhere in Southern California without the freeway. You can't get anywhere in LA without the freeway. But in terms of whose communities the freeway's running through, <laughs> it, that's a racist monument, right? Probably the most racist monument um, in our country. Um, and the other thing I wanted to mention was that, yes, you may no longer have a lot of manufacturing in terms of factories and warehouses located uh, in urban centers like in LA, but then you have all this new pollution from having to ship every single thing that you and I need from food to clothes, from other countries to here. <laughs> and China's not a hop, skip, and a jump, right? Uh, Latin America, other parts of Asia, they're not a hop, skip, and a jump away, okay? So that is causing the incredible pollution that now these immigrants are inhaling from those diesel cargo containers, right? Then all the, the pollution that comes from then, once we unload all that stuff we buy and then ship it across, it's all that renewed pollution, right? And then you have the issue of all the garbage we generate. So toxic waste incinerators, landfills, right? We Because we consume so much, we have to throw away so much, right? So we're one of the most wasteful countries, uh, if not the most wasteful in the entire globe, right? So one of the fights that the famous group Mothers of East Los Angeles so they're kind of like the pioneers of Latina mothers in LA fighting the good environmental justice and other fights, right? Which is that they successfully blocked the placement of an oil pipeline and a waste incinerator in their East LA neighborhood. 
Okay. Uh, the governor uh, got involved, Duke Majin. I mean, they, oh, they also fought off a prison. A state prison. So notice how kind of going back to your chicken egg argument, where's all that stuff going? It's certainly not going to Palos Verdes or Bel Air, right? Or Malibu. It's going to East LA, right? Um, And so a lot of these environmental justice fights are also about how do we incinerate and get rid of all this garbage? Now, um, one of the things that started to happen, which goes to your point about the global dimension, is that we are now having to ship garbage and recycling to other states, other countries, especially in the developing world, right? We just don't have the landfill capacity for it anymore. We've generated so much garbage, okay? Um, So you have the two-pronged premature uh, death that you're exposing low-income immigrants and people of color to in the U.S., and then you're exposing uh, people in the third world, in, in the global south. So you know, there's that issue as well. Um, so yes, I agree with you that the loss of manufacturing and then now taking it to other countries, obviously that is doing a lot of uh, slow, quiet killing. Um, but I think we also want to bear in mind the, uh, amount, incredible amount of waste and how toxic it is to try to figure out what to do with that but also the, the goods movement, oil movement apparatus. I just think it's, it's really um, unsustainable. So then touching upon that, can you speak to us about the Philippines? Because the U.S. looks at that and wags their finger at the Philippines and calls it a dirty country. But where is that trash coming from? A lot of it is coming from the United States. So and other advanced countries in Europe, um, Japan, I'm sure, you know, the... Other countries are starting to get into the game as they get wealthier, right? So one of the things that we do is I know that in addition to the toxic military pollution in the Philippines, the toxic imperialism, one thing that's happened is that mining companies from the U.S. and elsewhere uh, have decided that they, uh, I'm sorry, not mining, logging companies, okay? So they want Philippines wood and lumber. So they've chopped up, chopped up all this wood and lumber, right, in the Philippines. And so then when the Philippines experienced extreme flooding, whole villages and communities were wiped out because the logs were either pushed onto them or the lands were wide open now and there was nothing to block the flooding. So these are the ways in which we're committing mass murder, essentially. Uh, in the name of neoliberal capital, global capital, right? And then uh, another thing we do is we dump a lot of tobacco waste in the Philippines. And I don't know if we dump as much in the Philippines of our electronic waste, our e-waste, as we do in West Africa and in uh, other parts of Asia. I know they do get some, uh, but that's being dumped there and causing uh, extreme rates of cancer and sickness because all of that electronic uh, toxicity leaches into the water, into the soil. And then sometimes impoverished children are burning in really hazardous ways the computer parts so they can get down to the copper. I mean, it's essentially like putting your mouth to a tailpipe. I mean, it's just so incredibly um, uh, dangerous, right? It imperils your health. 
So there's that. And then the other thing we do is because of the rise of fast fashion, Sam, and the fact that we now see clothes as disposable and as garbage, we're dumping humongous tons of clothing uh, in places like the Philippines and the developing world. And that also causes uh, illness and cancer because the chemicals from the dyes and the fabrics and the fact that these do not disintegrate, clothes do not disintegrate easily, uh, it's killing the residents. You know, and so it's just endless, right? Uh, it's, it's endless. So we're told to buy a new phone every year, yep. a new computer every year, new clothes every month. And we don't think about what's happening to our old clothes. And I think we don't want to know about it because we understand that those things don't disappear. But if we don't think about it, then we don't feel bad about it. Yeah. But the ugly, unpleasant truth is that it is going somewhere. They're not magically disappearing. They're going to these poor countries and they're suffering the consequences. Exactly. And the thing too, is that there's no land space, right? For all these clothes and electronics and all this tobacco, there's no space, you know? So there's lots of ways in which you're environmentally uh, oppressing these communities because people need space. They need land. They need to move. They need to live somewhere. You know, it's, they, we need schools and hospitals to, to, we need land to build that on. I mean, it's, it's, so it's toxic imperialism and racism in multiple ways, right? And one of the things too about fast fashion is that, you know, in the name of profit, it, we're basically setting a new fashion trend every week. It's, I mean, it's, it used to be every season. So four seasons a year, right? So it's actually now weekly, every seven days, half the time disposing their clothes in the garbage and deciding to, you know, to follow the new trend that was set up for the next week. Oh, so now it's going to be billowy pants instead of tight pants, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's unsustainable. Uh, and the, what I think is that it's those who are able to make connections transnationally, if they were involved politically before they migrated, that really pick up on the injustice of the environmental racism, say in Carson, California, when they get here. It's very apparent, right? Because they've seen different vectors of pollution manifesting, whether it's through colonialism or imperialism or the military, uh, or now they see, you know, capital here. Uh, and so I think, you know, it's also important to talk about the transnational connections that immigrants are able to make because of having lived in more than one place. So how do we combat subtle victim blaming by even social progressives who either blame poor communities or countries or say things like humans are a virus and all lives matter as equating of all harm done as being equal or even when they blame poor communities for having, quote unquote, too many kids, something you touched upon earlier? Wow, that's the million dollar question, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the ways that we combat it is we say Beverly Hills, Bel Air, Palos Verdes, Malibu, Hollywood Hills, WeHo, West Hollywood. Do you have toxic waste incinerators dotting your city? <laughs> Do you have uh, chemical landfills? Do you have Arco, Texaco, Valero, Marathon, are, are they set up, are they setting up shop in your communities near your house, right? Uh, is your window right next to the freeway? 
<laughs> I think we have to ask those questions. Okay. It's not. Okay. Come on over here. Embody this community. Look at that flaring from that oil refinery. Look at, look at the diesel being spewed by 25 trucks driving by right next to this neighborhood right here. Look at this train yard, right? Look at all that diesel being spewed up by that train so that, you know, people can buy cute throw pillows and <laughs> nightstands and, and uh, you know, food, whatever, like CDs, whatever it is, right? I just, I think to me, it's like, I just think these are the ways in which we wake people up because unless you take them out of their pedestrian, banal, taken for granted experience, no one will understand. And it's not even a guarantee that they'll understand even if they go do these toxic tours or they go embody these communities or they go see the long lineup of children outside health clinics wheezing. You know, some people still don't get it, but I do think that these women and these activists are onto something when they talk about the power of embodied politics and the power of really emphasizing the embodied, uh, the bodily and the emotional inequalities uh, endemic to racism and classism. Actually, you just explained to me why when I first moved to LA, I got an apartment near the tent, like right next to the tent. And every day when I opened my window, I would see all this black soot on my windowsill that I'd have to clean. And I always just thought, oh, it's just living in LA. But when I moved away from the 10 and didn't live so close to the freeway, I didn't have that as much of a problem. And now I understand it was because of the 10 all these years, I didn't know why that was happening. And I thought maybe it was just like LA was dirtier back then. But really, now I understand it had everything to do with my vicinity to the freeway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. I mean, yeah, in LA, just given we have the worst air quality in the country, we're all going to have a little bit of that that little dusting, right, of our windowsills and of our front doorsteps and things like that. But the fact that you noticed it and had it so much and had to regularly clean it off, that's absolutely from the freeway. And so one of the other things I just thought of was, what do we do when we have earthquakes and there's tons of rubble? Are we, are we throwing that rubble uh, over to Brentwood, right? No. So one of the, the issues that uh, people had to deal with uh, in um, Southeast Los Angeles was something they called La Montaña. And La Montaña was essentially all the freeway rubble from the Northridge earthquake. Uh, I believe it was 94, 95, right? So one of those years. And they decided to dump it in a low-income, predominantly Latinx immigrant community with predominantly, you know what I mean, with a large unauthorized population, right? They didn't put it in, in uh, you know, nice part of LA. And it was when one of the local officials who represents the area went to La Montaña to listen to the environmental justice activists and his one of his lungs collapsed. <laughs> That's when he was like, man, I have to fight for these people. Mm. And not every politician would do that, right? But he embodied the community, and as a result of embodying the community, one of his lungs had collapsed, which had never happened to him before, from all of that um, cement in the air. You know, that's when activists realize, okay, well, at least we come closer to elected officials moving 
doing something for us. Wow. Yeah. I think that's an eye-opening way to end this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we really could talk about this for a long time because it's accelerating and only getting worse. So even by the end of our conversation, there's new updates and new things that are getting worse. So I think this is really helpful for a lot of people to start understanding and thinking about environmental justice and environmental racism, probably for the first time and probably something that they should have been thinking about, that I should have been thinking about, that we all should have been thinking about way sooner. So thank you for your time, Nadia. Oh, no problem. Thanks so much for having me. I just want to say climate justice is also for these communities we're talking about, right? And and I think that's something we need to bear in mind that when we think of climate justice, you know, we just think of it as something out there happening in nature. No, it's heat waves, right? Lack of water, contaminated water. This is all also tied to climate justice. And so we have to understand that it is people in the global South and also uh, people of color, low-income people in our own urban centers that suffer the most from climate catastrophes. We have to make that connection. Where can people find your book? If people go to Stanford University Press and type in the discount code REFUSING20, so I think it's all caps REFUSING and then the number 20, I believe the 20% discount is still applicable. Uh, But if people don't mind paying full price, all proceeds from the sale of my book, do go to the community organizations that I worked with in this book. uh, And they're always resource strapped. So they could use every penny that they could get. I'll put all of that in the show notes. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye. South Pulse. Hidden with the left. South Pulse. Sam. Paul. South Paul. South Paul.